Hey friends, it's Jennifer. Cheyenne. From Fireside Crime. We are Fireside with you with our second episode. And that fire is burning hot. That is a good fire. It is very good. Um, I've got a lot of fence posts on there. So that seems Still burning to be... the fence. Yes, we're almost done burning the fence. Um, I have ordered all the pieces to put a new one up. So we'll see how that goes. Our next episode might be titled Fence Side crime because we'll I don't know we're t just saying we're talking about the fence <laughs> anyway we're just gonna do it while we're building the fence we're gonna yeah everywhere we go in the yard it's gonna be like fence uh, umbrella side crime <laughs> grill side crime <laughs> well I worked really hard on our episode today from a lot of different sources nice. and um overall I think I just want to share that I'm just happy to be alive today Yes. Um, had a near-death experience last night. Yes. Jennifer had, and myself, had a <laughs> near-death experience. Um, so, we decided to watch the movie Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. And it was kind of scary. It was pretty scary. The books, because you read them when you're younger, the book was way scarier. Yeah. And it, like, didn't tell all of the scary stories. Like... Right. The scariest one to me is about the, like the green ribbon and her little head falls off oh, and yeah. all that. Oh yeah. But like it it was pretty scary. I think the yeah, the visuals were very scary. Yeah, anything that Guillermo del Toro produces is gonna be pretty cool. So it was kind of like young adult scary. Yeah. That's how I felt. It was um surprising. But uh scary but we highly recommend purchasing and reading in the dark or to your young children. Scary stories to tell in the dark. Oh, yeah, for sure. You have to. <laughs> have to do it. So, anyway, we watched this movie. Um, little scary. Mm. And then, um, after that, it was our bedtime. So Jumpy scary. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was scary. Um, I walk into the bedroom. Jennifer is sitting on the side of the bed on her side. In her bedroom. No, <laughs> plugging up my phone. Living my life. Just getting ready for bed. Yes. And then the room goes silent, which uh -huh. was my first suspicion that something was happening. So, <laughs> I, you know, occasionally Jennifer and I like to fight, we play around, we have a lot of fun in, uh -huh. in our house here. Yeah. Um, so, I decide... We like to pick on each other a lot. I decide to shimmy over very quietly, but just loud enough to where she should have been able to hear me. Uh-huh. Up to Jennifer's ear to whisper into her ear. So I go across the bed. Like to sneak up behind me. I'm sneaking up a little bit. My God. And I get right to her ear. And that's <laughs> when Jennifer turns around and we're face to face. And she lets out what I believe was a scream. But it sounded like... Otherworldly. <laughs> it sounded like my soul left my body for a minute. <laughs> I had never heard I a scream like that before. I didn't know that I could scream. Like yeah. I never screamed in my life. It was, his, I mean, and then just hysterical. <laughs> so Shane did a great job of setting that up. So yeah, and you know, when you're kind of like doing stuff, you're in your own mind and in your own world and just whatever, doing things. And then I just felt this presence, like, right behind. After we just watched this scary movie, 
Cheyenne decides to sneak up on me. And I was like, not, I guess I just wasn't expecting it. And turned around and it scared the bejeep. Yeah, I think my soul left my body for a yeah. minute. Right after that, you turned back around and you're very quiet. And I couldn't tell if you had died <laughs> or if that you were slumped over. having a heart attack. I was just, I sat back in the bed and I was just like looking at you, trying to figure out like if she has a heart attack, what am I going to tell people? <laughs> You were trying to figure out how you're going to get this house. That's what you were trying to figure out. I know. What would you tell people? Tell them you scared me to death? Nope. No. What no. would you tell people if no. I died that night? Um, we were having relations. Oh, my God. Just... No. We're editing that out. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> but, yeah. But it was really, I mean, after, you know, we got ourselves back together. It was very funny. Oh, my God. Just because I had never heard Jennifer scream before. <laughs> I've never heard Jennifer scream before. And it was crazy. Yeah, well, now you know. In case <laughs> of emergency and true fear, I, apparently I can scream. That's good, needed. because I cannot scream. I've never screamed in my life. If I ever get scared, something jumps out, I freeze. Yeah. And I don't do anything. I just, I'm frozen. I've like yelled in anger before, but I've def I've never I don't think I've ever screamed in fear. Anyways, so that's what I'm considering cardio for Fun yesterday because it definitely took the place of a mile long jog. <laughs> well, the beer you brought this home a while back and uh -huh. I saved it because of the name of it. Pernicious. Yeah. So, of course, it's an IPA, pernicious, yeah. and uh, so, it kind of matches... Oh, it's a really pretty. Yeah, it's a pretty can. It kind of matches our episode, the theme of our episode for tonight, cool. the word pernicious. So, yeah, I picked up this pernicious. Um, we actually sell it at work, but I've never tried it, mm -hmm. so I thought I should try it so I can, you know, describe it to people. Um, so, this is from Wicked Weed Brewing. Um, pernicious IPA, of course. <laughs> we love our IPAs. Um, let's see. Keep I it cold, it a, drink it fresh. It was an award winner of some kind. Wicked Weed is really in, in Asheville. Um, let's around, see. Yeah, down here. I think that the, says it won a silver of some medal recipient in American Style India Pale Ale 2015 Great American Beer Festival. That's cool. That's where we need to. I wonder where that from. is. About to look we're about up. to look it up, and we're going to go to there. Go into there. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Pernicious. It's very tiny. Can you read it? Implies influence that is harmful in a way not easily noticed. Oh. This beer is harmful, not because of overwhelming hop bitterness, but for its balanced brightness, which insidiously runs or runs, <laughs> ruins your expectations for all other IPAs. Huh, that's funny. We'll see. Yeah. This hop delivery vehicle is crafted to enjoy fresh and often. And because of its drinkability and clean finish, you'll never look at IPAs the same way again. The harm is done. That's some, that's some big talk right it up. there. <clears throat> Sorry. That's some big talk. Did you just swallow something? I did. I think a... <clears throat> A gnat flew into my windpipe. Okay. Um, gnats are vegan, right? Yes. Okay. Um, so okay. I picked pernicious because like the beer 
claims to be uh, harmful, but you don't realize that it's harmful. It's very mm-hmm. similar to meth. Well, I think some people might know that <laughs> meth is harmful. Okay. Uh, but yes, very similar to the uh, one of the characters in the story I'm going to share with you. Okay. Um, we all know that New Belgium's Juicy Hayes IPA is the IPA king, is the king of yes. IPAs. So uh, I'm very interested We're see to how hear. This goes. All right, let's do it. Um, it. So the can itself, it's a 12 ounce can. It's purple, which is really cool. It looks like it has a spider. It's 12 ounces? Yeah. Is it, 12? it is? Yeah. How much is eight ounces? Like, very small. Oh. About four ounces less than this one. 100% thought that was uh, no. a cup. This <laughs> been counting that as a cup this like, whole yeah, time. Add that to my cup of water for the day. Okay, so it's got a spider on it playing the trumpet with bubbles coming out of it. That's just cool. It's got some little like pods. It looks Aren't like hops. I think they're cool, like cool. Hops. I thought they're like alien. There might be alien pods. eggs. Might be alien eggs. Looks like alien eggs, and it's seven point three. That's very exciting. All right, so we're gonna give it a go. Let's open her up. Um, is this cup for me? It is. There's some ashes in it, but that's okay. Well, that's the, that's the price you pay when you I will be, um, I'm drinking out of a Cherokee Indian Hospital Foundation cup. We're just here supporting the Cherokee Indian Hospital Foundation. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's pour that. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Pretty, pretty. Okay, there you are. All right. Mine's got a lot of head on it. Cheers. I just got foam, so I may oh, have to good. give it another go. It's good. Yeah? You like it? I do. Mmm. Okay. It's pretty good. I'm still just getting foam, so I'm getting there. Do you know if you touch the side of your nose and then touch, like, the foam, it starts to go down? Huh. Is that because of the oils? Yeah, your nose grease. Because my nose is greasy? St- yeah, stick your whole nose in the foam and it goes down. <laughs> that is, uh... I'm still just getting foam. It's pr- Well, you'll just have to believe me when I say that it's pretty good. Alright, so, when my foam goes down, I'm going to give it a go and I'll let you know how it is. Alright, sounds good. Mm. Alright, let's do this let's thing. Tell a tale, a fireside tale. As old as time. Gather round, children. Don't gather your children around. Oh, God. Where is it? (laughs) Okay, there it is. All right, so. Got a. Kind of just an interesting story. I've been interested in this for quite some time. And. There are a couple of podcasts I want to talk about a little bit later that go into this further, but um, did a lot of research on this, wanted to make it feel like my own, so I'm calling this The City Too Busy to Hate, The Search for the Atlanta Monster. Oh. Now. Okay. This episode may cover material especially sensitive, including the disappearance and death of children and adolescents. Listener discretion advised. In other words... Guard your earballs. Yes, if you're not into missing kids, this is probably not the episode for you. <laughs> don't know who's into missing kids, but or murdered kids. Yeah, also, don't know who's into murdered kids. <laughs> I don't know who's into either of those things. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just gonna, gonna get the fire here. going. I'm gonna play with the fire. <laughs> you start. All right, I'll take care of this part. <laughs> 
this may not be the place for you. This may not, right. If you did not. <laughs> right. If, oh, God. It's starting off rough. <laughs> All right. In the late 70s, Atlanta was booming and fueled by the excitement from electing the city's first black mayor. Crisis, however, was not far away as uh, African-American children began disappearing and being found dead all across the great city of Atlanta. Mayor Maynard Jackson, first black mayor of any southern city, was uh, really kind of just, um, the city was so excited about having him and he was credited as making, really trying to make a true, uh, honest attempt at uniting neighborhoods. So we're talking about a time when, I mean, there were regular Klan marches down the streets. Um, The previous mayor, um, between 1970 and 1974, Sam Maisel was, I mean, you know, he's telling people in news conferences that it was time for black leaders and their, you know, their people to do themselves a favor and start thinking white to really kind of, if you want to get ahead of the game, you've got to think more white. So, oh God, I'm being smoked out. Sorry. It's all right. (laughs) Smoke was getting to me. There was also a significant divide between low-income, middle-class, and higher-income black communities and very little um, community between each other. It was just ultimately overall just a tough time, a time of divide. And to make it worse... (laughs) Between 1979 and 1981, approximately 29 children, adolescents, and adults were killed in the two years between July 1979 and May 1981. 29? Yeah. I did years. not know it was that many. Yeah. I, well, I didn't either. Wow. I, yeah. It's a lot. I've done quite a bit of editing uh, to the need-to-know parts and methods of death for how they were found as it relates to the commonalities of the case. And also there were 29. So I want to be conscientious of the information that we're sharing. Right. Um, so to go through um, a few of these that are were immediately connected, I want to share those. So 1979, Edward Hope Smith, also known as Teddy, and Alfred Evans, also known as Q, both 14, disappeared four days apart and their bodies were found on July 28th in a wooded area. These were likely the first victims of the, quote, Atlanta child killer. On September 4th, 14-year-old Milton Harvey disappeared while on errand, running an errand to the bank for his mother. He was riding a yellow 10-speed bike, which was found a week later in a remote area of Atlanta. His body was not recovered until November of that year. In October, nine-year-old Yusef Bell went to the store to buy snuff for a neighbor. Snuff is like uh, tobacco. People dip. Remember when you like could go buy that stuff as a kid? It's like, oh, it's for my grandpa. Yeah, okay, no big deal. Cool. All right. Yeah, there you go. It's gonna be a quarter, kid. Mm-hmm. Um. And a witness said that they saw him get into a blue car. Bell's body was found clothed in the brown cu- in the brown cutoff shorts he was last seen wearing, though they had a piece of masking tape stuck to them. He had been hit over the head twice, and the cause of death was strangulation. Police did not, though, immediately link his disappearance to the previous killings. Fast forward to 1980, uh, March 4th, 1980, the first female victim, 12-year-old Angel Lanier, disappeared. She left her house around 4 p.m. and was last seen at a friend's house. Lanier's body was found six days later in the wooded vacant lot in the same clothes which she had left home. 
A pair of white underwear that did not belong to her were in her mouth, and her hands were bound with an electrical cord. Cause of death was strangulation. On March 11th, one week later, Mm -hmm. after Lanier's disappearance, 11-year-old Jeffrey Mathis disappeared while on an errand for his mother. This is also, I mean... No big deal. Just tell your kid to run down to the store to get some groceries or whatever. Just a lot, you know, this was a time when they were like free range kids, you know, it was just not a big deal. Mm -hmm. And to, you know, go run errands or just be out on the streets by yourself, just walking around or after school or whatever. Um, Jeffrey Mathis disappeared on an errand for his mother. Months later, a girl said that she saw him get into a blue car with a light-skinned man and a dark-skinned man. The body of Jeffrey Mathis was found in a briar-covered patch of woodlands 11 months after he disappeared, by which time it was not possible to identify the cause of death. In May of that year, -year 14-year-old Eric Middlebrooks disappeared. He was last seen answering uh, telephone at home and then leaving in a hurry on his bicycle. His body was found following day next to his bicycle in the rear garage of, his, of an Atlanta bar. The bar was located next door to what was then the Georgia Department of Offender Rehabilitation. His pockets were turned inside out. His chest and arms had slight stab wounds, and the cause of death was determined to be blunt force trauma to the head. A few weeks before he disappeared, it was noted that Middle Brooks had testified against three juveniles in a robbery case. In June, uh, 12-year-old Christopher Richardson went missing on his way to a local pool. He was last seen walking towards the DeKalb County's Midway Recreation Center, Midway Park. His body was not found until the following January. He was clothed in unfamiliar swim trunks, along with the body of a later victim, Earl Terrell. So they were found at the same time. Uh The cause of Richardson's death was not determined. On June 22nd, seven-year-old Latoya Wilson disappeared from her parents' apartment. So, f- from the apartment. Her mother, I believe, saw that, said that she last saw her and her sister sleeping around 1 a.m. And the next morning, she was reported missing. Uh, she appeared to have been abducted by two men, according to a witness. Uh, one of whom was seen climbing into the apartment window, then holding... Uh, Latoya in his arms oh excuse me Latanya in his arms as he spoke to the other man in the parking lot on October 18th Wilson's body was found in a fenced in area at the end of Verbena Street in Atlanta by then the body had been skeletonized no cause of death could be established the next day June 23rd 10 year old Aaron Weichie disappeared after being seen near a local grocery store getting into a blue Chevrolet with either one or two black men a female witness says that she saw Waichi being led from the corner grocery store by a six-foot-tall, 180-pound black male, approximately 30 years old, with a mustache and a goatee. The witness's description of the car matched the description of the similar car implicated in the earlier Jeffrey Mathis disappearance. The following day, Waichi's body was found... Ooh. That looks scary over there. <laughs> Just fire, fire everywhere. Uh, the following day, Waichi's body was found under a bridge. The official cause of death was asphyxiation, suffered uh, from a broken neck in the fall. Uh, July 1980, two more children, Anthony Carter and Earl Terror, were murdered. 
Between August and November 1980, five more killings took place. All the victims were African-American children between ages of 7 and 14, and most were killed via asphyxiation. All victims will be recognized in this episode. Uh, in the 1981, the uh, first known victim of the new year, Luby uh, Jeter, was uh, who disappeared on January 3rd. Jeter's body was found February 5th. Jeter's friend Terry Pugh went missing in January. An anonymous caller told police where to find Pugh's body. Terry hmm. lived in the apartments as the same apartments as Edward Teddy Smith, who was killed in 1979. In February, March 1981, six more bodies were discovered, believed to be linked to the previous homicides. Among the dead was the body of Eddie Duncan, the first adult victim. <clears throat> in April, 20-year-old Larry Rogers, 28-year-old John Porter, and 21-year-old Jimmy Ray Payne were murdered. Porter and Payne were ex-convicts and had recently been released from Arendelle State Prison after serving time for burglary. On May 12, 1981, FBI agents found the body of 17-year-old William Billy Starr Barrett on a curb in a wooded area near his home. Witness described a black man standing over and observing the location where the body was found before driving away in a white over blue Cadillac. Towards the end of May 1981, the last reported victim was added to the list, 28-year-old Nathaniel Cater. He was seen by a gardener at the entrance of, uh, Rialto, of the Rialto Theater in Atlanta, reportedly holding hands with Wayne Williams. His body was discovered just hours later. Now, one of the investigators on the case, Chet Detlinger, creates a map of victims' locations. Despite the differences in ages, the victims fell within the same geographic parameters over the two-year period. Mm -hmm. They were all connected to Memorial Drive in Atlanta and 11 major streets in the area. And a lot of them, so what he's saying ultimately is that there was kind of this one area that kids were going missing from. Right. So there were a few similarities in the cases, and what was so surprising to me was how close the abductions or disappearances took place. Because I feel like we typically will see, like, weeks or months go by mm -hmm. in a lot of abduction cases. Um, and what we see a lot of times is someone's just kind of waiting to see if I got away with that. Right. Or, like, what that timeline is going to look like. Um, some of these were days or even weeks apart. The Atlanta Police Department had more than 100 agents um, working the investigation over the two-year period. And the city mayor uh, imposed curfew in the city. Parents of the city removed their children from schools, forbade them from playing outside. It was, I mean, a fearful, fearful, fearful time when not only this was going on, but it was apparent that police really didn't have <laughs> any leads. Yeah, um, yeah. And there was also no DNA testing at this time. This is the late 70s mm -hmm. and um you know really police could just go off of like if they, if there was blood on the scene blood evidence um and they could tell by like they did a lot of hair and fiber matching so by hair they could tell if someone was male or female about the approximate age the uh ethnicity but that was about it um parents of children were starting to rise up and start groups on their own um when it appeared the police weren't really being very passionate about the mis missing or murdered children so far. Did you have something? Yeah. Um, now, is it all parents or... Mm -mm. I'm under the assumption that none of the victims were white. That's correct. Okay. 
Uh, parents of missing and murdered children. I feel like I need to drink the rest of that. Yeah, drink that. I finally got um, past the foam, and it is very delicious. It is good. Mm-hmm. All right. So, I would, yeah, I would say um, parents of black children um, in these neighborhoods and also the parents of uh, the victims mm-hmm. were rising up. They just felt like police weren't doing enough. <clears throat> Uh, Yusef Bell's mother, Camille Bell, um, founded the Committee to Stop Children's Murders and was really uh, the face of the community in a lot of ways. And she was really in the face of the media and the APD wanting to know, you know, speaking for many people, wanting to know what they were going to do to keep the city safe. Mm-hmm. APD started, <laughs> um, they started to bring in psychics. Uh, to comb some of these areas. They were bringing in dog sniffing groups. Now these are not people who were there to sniff dogs. They were bringing in dogs to sniff out bodies. Right. Now, going back to psychics, how do you feel about that? Mm. I believe Mm. that there are some people that are definitely psychic. Sure. I mean, I guess I feel like I guess there's different, I would have to do a little more research. There's, I guess there's different types of psychics. Like they weren't out there with their crystal balls and whatever, but they were taking them to the crime scenes. (laughs) And I mean, it's a little bit funny, but not funny, but also a little bit funny that they were just saying, yeah, there's real bad. And they would like take them to the crime scene. They'd be Mm -hmm. like, oh, there's real bad energy here. I mean, what you think? A kid was murdered there. Right. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, it feels great here. I really am picking up the energy. It feels real, real calm real here. Real energy. Very energy like here. Uh, <laughs> I think that there are definitely people who have some type of intuitive ability, um, and I, I don't really know what they were expecting. Honestly, I just think they don't. They didn't know what to do. I think the police just didn't know what to do. There were so many. Yeah. In such a short amount of time that, honestly, I just think they were overwhelmed and trying to, like, find something that would stick and help them out. Right. Yeah. Um, volunteer groups were going out to, like, walk areas. Um, a volunteer, just like people from the community said, we're going to get together, you know, tomorrow at 6 a.m. and search wherever place. And the volunteers found the body of... A missing child who the police had come that area said that they come that area the day before so like it's right. just adding up the mistrust is mm-hmm. just really starting to mount um yeah it's just kind of a lot going on um police had their hands full with the community you know had no trust in the police force the police force you know didn't trust what they were calling vigilante groups and i'm like these weren't vigilante groups. These were people who were scared to death about what could happen to their kid, you know, or what happened, you know, if my friend, you know, I would fight for one of my friends who has a young child. If God forbid every, anything like this ever happened to them, I mean, oh, yeah, I would stand sure. up and fight for them too. So there was, um, there's a lot going on, a lot of, a lot of anger and a lot of hurt. President Ronald Reagan was questioned about the 17 at that time. Uh, missing or murdered children of Atlanta that had at that time uh, during a press conference which following Mayor Jackson of Atlanta found his way to the White House. Surprise, surprise, oh. after the president was questioned about it. Huh. 
uh, in a meeting with the president, and he basically just kind of laid it out to say, look, the Lindbergh baby was one white child, and there was so much press on that case. Everybody knows who the Lindbergh baby is. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> However, we've got almost 20 missing and murdered black kids in Atlanta. Now, where are y'all at for that? Where's the help? So, wouldn't you know it, that November, uh, the FBI became involved with the case. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> sounds about right. Um... And they, there were a lot of them assigned. They assigned two agents to each uh, victim, each possible victim. Early cases of the boys being found were at uh, what's commonly called dump sites or areas where they were likely killed in one place and then dumped somewhere else. So mm-hmm. uh, they were left, some were found um, behind dumpsters, abandoned schools, and wooded areas. Um, criminologists, FBI criminologists from the state crime lab began comparing and matching fibers found on the bodies and began to realize after finding several distinctive green fibers that, you know, hey, if we can find the environment, if we can find where these fibers are coming from, we might be able to find the killer. So what do you think they did with that information? That's that's deep info. That's deep info to have knowledge of. Did they tell everybody? They sure put it in the newspaper. <laughs> they put it in the newspaper. Okay, that was... Okay. And wouldn't you know it, all of a sudden, the victims were then being found in the river. Hmm. So, which, of <laughs> course, water washes away a lot of evidence, unfortunately. And um, it also was evidence that there was potentially, potentially only one killer. So, as time goes on, the victims also began um, showing up a bit older. So, 1979 was all about children typically 16 and under. Mm -hmm. And then later, 1980, and then 1981, ages began getting older. And the last known victim, Nathaniel Carter, was 28. Atlanta police wanted to um, start staking out overwater bridges in Atlanta, which there are about 14 bridges to watch. Uh, which is a lot. That's a lot of it's manpower. Yeah. It is. Um, <clears throat> and estimated they had between about 100 and 145 agents staking out bridges per night, which is a lot of people. So, like, 10 officers. 10 per bridge? That's what they said. That's what they tell me. Okay. On May 22nd, 1981, at uh, the southernmost bridge, around 3 a.m., officers hear a, a heavy splash and see headlights through the spokes of the bridge and uh you know all of a sudden they're they're on their radios and they're you know find out who that is Mm -hmm. and so there were like officers waiting under the bridge there were officers in different areas on either side of the bridge watching cars go by so they stop uh the person driving the vehicle so it had kind of slowly coasted onto the bridge they heard this big splash and then it was turning around so the car was stopped as it was turning around and going off the bridge and it was driven by a 23 year old Wayne Williams now Wayne Williams ran a radio station out of his house he was uh, he called himself a young talent scout Mm-hmm. Uh, and would often put up flyers in black neighborhoods um, around town, uh, scouting young, talented men between the ages of 11 and 21 uh-huh. uh, to be a part of this band called Gemini. 
and they would perform at neighborhood talent shows. And uh, he had a studio where they could come and practice, and he would say things like, you know, I can make you the next Michael Jackson, and I've got, you know, this contact here with that contract there. Um, they had suspicious reason to stop him and search him, but not to arrest him. So upon searching his car, they found uh, gloves and a rope, um, and while they had him there, sent for the river to be searched. However, they couldn't come up with a body uh, or any unusual reason for the splash. So they let him go. Okay. All right. So, um, during questioning on the bridge, though, William said that he was on his way. The reason that he was out at 3 a.m. was that he was on his way to uh, audition a woman. He had an audition with a woman named Cheryl Johnson at 7 a.m. the next day. Okay. And he was out uh, as a singer for the band. And uh, said that she lived in uh, Smyrna, which is a town nearby uh, Atlanta and Georgia. Um, and that he wanted to get an appointment with her at 7 a.m. So he wanted to make sure he knew where her apartment was. So that's the reason he was out at, seven, at 3 o'clock in the morning on the bridge. Getting it done the day before. I have, when I have to be somewhere, uh -huh. I've driven by that place before, like the day before. So Not likely in the middle of the night. Not well, usually in the middle of the night. Okay. Well, our dogs are on the trail. They also think it's highly, highly suspect. Of course, police are try to locate this woman and they can't find her anywhere. So they say that she lives in... It's called Spanish something apartments. Can't find her. No trace of her. So, okay. All right. Suspicious. Real suspect <laughs> there. And so anyways, they let him go. So two days later, on May 24th, the nude body of Nathaniel Carter, 28 years old, was found floating downriver a few miles away from the bridge where police had seen the suspicious station wagon. Based on this evidence, including the police officer's hearing of the splash, police believed that Williams had killed Carter and disposed of his body while the police were nearby that night. So the FBI, so what they start doing at this point is they start putting a case together. They've got reason to believe that Wayne Williams is potentially a suspect here. Mm -hmm. So the FBI had been putting together a profile during this time. They suspected that uh, the killer could likely be younger, possibly a black male, perhaps living with their parents uh, near the neighborhoods or communities. Oh, hyper aware of news stories. One of the things that he said to the police that they found really odd when they were questioning him about, you know, what he was doing out there. Does he know anything about what's been going on with these kids going missing? He said, no, but he really, but Wayne Williams really gave like kind of a, a weird amount of detail about how like station two has done a really great job of covering the story. And that just kind of struck them as odd. Like, yeah. everybody's covering the story. Like, why, is, why are you talking so much about this particular station? So that kind of just was like, oh, that's weird to say. Um, so anyways, back to the profile. So hyper aware of news stories. Um, <laughs> Wayne Williams had previously been arrested for having a blue light in his car and impersonating a police officer. Okay. So he would say, he said that the reason that he had all this going on and he had a police scanner in his car was because of his radio station. I'm a DJ and you know, if there's a potential news break, he would jump in his car and try to get to the scene of whatever for info for his radio show. But I'm like, that feels, I mean, it feels suspect anyways, but if you're, I mean, if someone 
not that I'm personally implicating Wayne Williams, but I'm just saying that if you're trying to get kids to trust you, the first thing you're going to show up as is a cop. Your mom's in trouble, you know, something's going on, oh, XYZ, yeah. you've got to come with me, hurry, hurry, get in the police car, you know, I, I can have a blue light, obviously I'm a cop. Yeah, obviously, you know, so there, and I, I, you know, I don't know what he was wearing or anything like that. Could have said I'm undercover. He could have had a police uniform. What do I know? Right. But, um, I was like, man, that really feels suspect. Yeah, he yeah. seems a little suspicious at the moment. Might just be a weird guy. There's weird people. We're weird. Yeah. We're not killing kids. We're weird. No. Uh, let's see. So, fast forward a little bit. Okay. Uh, Wayne Williams was picked up for littering. So, ultimately, they basically, like, had to have the eye on him and are like, it, literally find anything to pick him literally. up for. Literally. Literally. <laughs> So, he's picked up for littering. Okay. And subsequently uh, is interviewed about the victims. Uh, the medical examiner for Nathaniel Carter, uh, excuse me, I keep saying Carter, Cater, uh, Nathaniel Cater, upon autopsy, finds these same green fibers on his body that's, that connects him to the other victims. On June 3rd, 1981, the crime scene team from the FBI had been flown down to Georgia from D.C., because there was a suspect, uh, let's see, there was a suspect vehicle in the basement of the federal building waiting to be searched and that the home needed to be searched as well. So it was, turns out, Wayne Williams' station wagon. Mm-hmm. Um, what color is that station wagon? It's white. Oh. And the regular car he drove was blue. Oh. His daddy's car. Oh. Mm-hmm. Upon search of Wayne Williams' home, uh-huh. they found uh, something called a slapjack in a ceiling panel. What do you think a slapjack is? I think it's a skinny baton. Because mm. I got one. <laughs> you do? In my car, yep. You have a slapjack in your yeah, car? Yeah, you never know. I don't know. I didn't know you had a slap. Let me, get, let me see it. I will show it to you. All right. Well, describe that- it then. That is what it is. It's kind of like... <sighs> It's like a TV antenna. Mm-hmm. You can extend it, and it's very... Um, it's like a baton. Like a baton, but it's got a little flexibility <laughs> at the end. <laughs> I like your I'm just, your like, wailing like, around. I'm like, the, if this was charades, I would 100% know that that was a slapjack. But you were just you waving your arm over your head. think I'm fly fishing. <laughs> I'm just in the backyard wailing my arms. Uh, the neighbors hate us. But I that's know. Okay. It's fine. They're fine. It's good for them. It's yeah. good for them. Keep them variety. on their toes. That's right. We've had at least three, one, two, three. We've had at least four neighbors moved out since we moved in. I know. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure our one neighbor killed his wife. God. We'll talk about that at some point. That's on a future. That might be a mini marshmallow. Yeah. <sighs> so that's a, what We moved in and they were like, God, there goes the neighborhood. But anyways, the slapjack so similar that they found was about 10 inches long. It was like a, a piece of leather, and it had a lead, uh, piece of lead in the end. Ooh. So, yeah, um, it, could, it could kill someone. It would be like hitting someone. If you hit them in the head hard enough, it would be like hitting them with a lead pipe. I mean, mm. it, but very portable, but it's in the ceiling panel. What's it, what's it being hid for? Mm-hmm. In the ceiling. Like, that's a weird hiding spot. Of the car? No, of the house. <laughs> oh, it was He's still in the house. Oh, I'm focused sorry. on the car. So, <laughs> I was like, that is weird. Oh, that would have been weirder. That's where it should have been. Is yours hidden in the ceiling panel? (laughs) The ceiling panel of my car. 
Sorry. So uh, <laughs> the car, yes. And upon search of his home, uh, they find this okay. in the ceiling panel. Okay. Um, that is weird. Well, and several of the victims had been hit in the head numerous times or had blunt force trauma. Um, it's not they, looking good. Well, and, yeah, it, it looks worse. They also found tons of photos of boys uh, clothed. And when one of the investigators took a photo he thought looked like one of the victims to the chief, Wayne Williams' father, Homer Williams, um, who he shared the home with. So Wayne Williams lived with his parents, so uh-huh. part of the profile, lived with, probably lived with their parents. Uh-huh. Um, his father snatched it out of his hand was like that's not that's not yours that's not for you suspicious i know um there was also evidence that photos had been burned in their fire pit in their backyard perhaps uh when wayne was released from the bridge that night that's Uh, what i think he should have burned all that that he went home and probably burned the photos of the victims like Mm -hmm. if he had those i would imagine yeah they you know they couldn't tell what was what Um, the home had also had, uh, the home also had wall-to-wall green carpet. Oh. Ah. And -hmm. fibers that were taken from the home and compared to the mysterious green fiber evidence removed from the bodies of victims. And guess what? Match. It was a match. Okay. So because of the correlation of the fibers in the home, the fibers, uh, also from their bedspread, uh, matched fibers that were on the bodies and uh, dog hairs from the family German Shepherd. You know, it's not That'll looking it. so good for... That'll do it, Wayne. Yeah. So he was arrested for the murder of Nathaniel Cater. Wayne Williams uh, proclaims his innocence through this whole thing. He's being set up. Sure. All the things. Yeah. And so a trial begins. There was so much information on the trial. Like, so, so, so much. It was... I always talk about going down the rabbit hole. Went way down the rabbit hole. So, we'll talk more about that later. The trial was extremely high profile. Uh, There were snipers on top of buildings. And, um, yeah. So, like, just buildings surrounding the courthouse. And police and guards had to take extra first aid and trauma training because they thought it could be bombed. He could, someone could try to assassinate him. I mean, it was super high profile and tons and tons. The now, the current mayor, I believe, well, current as of 2019, Mm -hmm. was saying that if you took, it was like taking the the media from like the JonBenet Ramsey case and how that was such a media frenzy. And just amplifying it, but also condensing it down for the city. It was just cra- It was just a crazy time. Wow. I know. Let's see. The prosecution tried... Uh, so, the trial's going on. The prosecution tries to produce evidence linking Wayne Williams to at least 10 of the murdered children. So, normally when they... This is called uh, pattern evidence. So... Typically, when they try to establish pattern evidence in a trial, they will stop a trial, have a hearing separately to in front of a judge to say, this is all the evidence. Can it be used in this trial? And the judge will say yes or no. Huh. Um, yeah. So, ultimately, they, I, they didn't stop to do a hearing. The judge heard the evidence. Um, 
and I couldn't really find an answer, yes or no, truly, to whether that was, um, he was not charged with their murders, ultimately. So I think it could, it was added as um, evidence to dis- establish a pattern of these fibers uh-huh. being linked to others, basically to establish that he didn't just kill these people, he has the capacity to kill others. Um, anyways, so the jury took uh, 11 hours to deliberate and came back ultimately with a verdict of guilty. He received two counts of murder for Jimmy Payne and Nathaniel Cater, and it seemed that the Atlanta child murderer had been caught. Uh-huh. And two days after um, the verdict at a press conference, Lee Brown, who was the public safety commissioner at that time, felt that they satisfied 23 of the 29 cases and they closed the cases. Okay. There were a a lot of uh, parents of the murdered children who were not satisfied and did not believe that Wayne Williams was guilty. Um, Anyways, there's, like I said, there's so much more detail that you can possibly get into. Um, Why did they think he was not guilty? Are you going over that? No, not really. That's a good question. I think on the one hand... um, I mean, on the one hand, I think people were so upset to find out that this could potentially be a black man doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was a a lot around that, like the perpetrator must be white. It must be somebody who hates black people. And also, again, rewind, um, a lot of Klan activity. There were Klansmen in the police department. So it was impossible to think that a black man could have done this. So I think that that is part of it. And then the yeah. other part of it is that, you know, there's also some, some controversy in between, um, <clears throat> for example, for Nathaniel Cater, the, the trial was, uh, based around him being found two days later and being connected to Wayne Williams because he had these fibers. However, the river that he was found in, you know, they did all these tests on the river. There were all kinds of different fibers in the river. So the question is, did the fibers actually come from Wayne Williams or did they just come from whatever was coming out of the river pipe? Right. But then the prosecution says, well, no, yeah, fine. There are fibers in the river, but they're not these green carpet fibers. Yes. So it was just a lot of like back and forth. And there was some questioning there. There was a lot of questioning. So Wayne Williams was 23. He was about five, seven. Uh-huh. So kind of a smaller and stature guy. Um, I don't know, probably weighed around 150 or 60 pounds. Little guy. Little guy. So Nathaniel Carter was uh, six foot tall or so, probably over 160 pounds, probably 160, 180 pounds. Yeah. So that was another question is in this amount of time, could he have stopped his, you know, rolled onto the bridge, stopped his car, pulled out a 180 pound man the guardrail on the bridge was only about two feet high. Mm-hmm. Could he have picked him up and thrown him in the river? Well, the police were saying, well, he didn't have to pick him up. All he had to do was get his feet out, drag, pull him and drag him out, and then the rest of him would go in the river. Yeah. So there was, like, a lot of back and yeah. forth and question about that. Um, and I think some of it just had to do with the different timelines. I, I, I guess I feel like that the carpet fibers... Um, and in the 70s, that's really all they had to go off of, was matching hairs and fibers. I think that it's highly suspect that 
you would find the same dog hair. Yeah. And carpet and bed linen fibers. Right. Like, I, I feel like that seems pretty solid. But, you Do you know, think I, his dad was in on it? I think he could have been. Because, yeah. Just I think how he, he acted with that photo. He acted with the photo. A witness, um, at least one witness, said that they saw two. a boy get in a car with two black men. Uh-huh. Um, his, he was driving the blue car. Yeah. All Wayne drives a white house. one. Uh, like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Huh. Maybe. I'm calling uh, it right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Let's see. And we're sued. Oh, great. Uh, <laughs> well, it's been fun, guys. <laughs> um, let's see. The, the trial selection um, began on December 28th. Uh, or not trial selection, jury selection. All white. Um, no, actually, nine women and three men, um, eight African American and four oh. Caucasian. Oh, yeah, that's surprising. And the judge was black. The judge, um, Judge Clarence Cooper, was also black. And it seemed um, one of the documentaries I was watching said that he just really didn't want to take this case. Yeah. However, he was kind of I think pushed into taking this case because he was black, and it right. would feel like okay, well, if he's found guilty, one of us found him guilty. More like it's, yeah, it's not exactly. Yeah. However, there were other white judges who actually had more experience trying murder cases than him. So I think that there's just kind of, there was just a lot, um, you know, a lot to unpack there. Um, And the judge found that the most important evidence against Williams was the fiber analysis between the victims, which is what he was indicted for. Um, Jimmy Ray Payne and Nathaniel Carter and the 12 pattern murder cases in which circumstantial evidence uh, culminated in numerous links among the crimes. So that's what got him, those fibers. Um, a lot of witness testimony. Um, one of the, uh, I don't have it on here, but one of the documentaries I was watching was like a good friend of his who she was the very last witness for the prosecution. And she said, I really think he, you know, could have killed them. The children and like mm-hmm. they were just just unpacking her testimony was really crazy um the prosecution after her their last question um in the case to her was do you think that wayne williams is capable of these murders and she just was crying and she just was like looking at him yeah. almost like they said almost like saying i'm sorry with my face to him and she said yes Wow. And um, the prosecution rested their case. I'd be like, "Ooh, I'm going to kill you." <laughs> be looking One at of my like friends did that. the knife across the throat. Just like, I swear, <laughs> swear. So it was intense. Um, <laughs> all right. So February 27th, 1982, after 11 hours of deliberation, the jury found Wayne Bertram Williams guilty on two uh, of the two murders. He was sentenced to two consecutive life terms in Georgia's Hancock State Prison in Sparta. Uh, The chief of Atlanta PD in 2004 worked on reopening the cases uh, to try and use new technology at that time to determine any additional information, but it eventually was fizzled out by his successor. But in March of uh, last year, 2019, uh, Atlanta Mayor Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms and Atlanta Police Chief Erica Shields announced that officials would retest. So they're still like diving back into this to see if there's anything additional, running DNA, anything that they can find mm-hmm. that not to um, 
exonerate Williams, but to say, is there something that we've missed? So I feel like these cases have really haunted Atlanta and police and officials that really cared about it for a really long time. Yeah. Um, oh, wait, um, yeah. the police chief, is that uh, a female? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's hot. Cool. It is cool. And also, of course, it takes a female mayor and a female police chief like, to come get the now. job done. Come on now. Well, and I really loved what she said because um, she said they would retest evidence from the murders, which would be gathered by the Atlanta Police Department, Fulton County uh, District Attorney's Office, and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. And in a news conference, Mayor Bottoms said... Quote, it may be that there is nothing left to be tested, but I do think history will judge us by our actions, and we will be able to say we tried. As of 2019, Wayne Williams continues to maintain his innocence. Wow. How about it? That is interesting. So, um, I'll list a couple of references uh, on our uh, description. What is it called? A description? The podcast description? Sure. Uh, I'll list a couple of references on there. I will say a great podcast focused on the details of this case is is called Atlanta Monster uh, by Payne Lindsay. It's a really well produced, um, really well produced podcast and gets into the nitty gritty of the city and the timeline. If you haven't listened also to his first podcast, Up and Vanished, it is. I think the podcast that really made us want to be podcasters and like that's like the coolest podcast ever. I have listened to it like three times. It is it's an unbelievable podcast um, of just this guy who was making films and decided to do cold case, just research a no name cold case um, in Osceola, Georgia, and highly recommend listening to so Payne good. Lindsay I might podcast. go listen to it again. I know, but you know, I also just and and. We were listening to it on a road trip to Florida, the whole way there, the whole way back, completely immersed in it. And when we got back, the freaking case was solved. Yeah, after so 12 it was like, years. I like, I hear you telling me about it. I'm like, am I in a movie? I can't tell if I'm dreaming like, or not. Like, is this real? It was so surreal. <laughs> but it, it's what made us, I think, really want to become podcasters and, and just to contribute and bring to light cases and, and just speak about unspeakable things like child murders. missing and murdered children of Atlanta and all over the world. So, really quickly, I want to dedicate this episode to the following. Edward Smith, 14. Alfred Evans, 13. Milton Harvey, 14. Yusef Bell, 9. Angel Lanier, 12. Jeffrey Mathis, 11. Eric Middlebrooks, 14. Christopher Richardson, 12. Latanya Wilson, 7. Aaron Weichi, 10. Anthony Carter, 9. Earl Terrell, 10. Clifford Jones, 12. Darren Glass, 10. Charles Stevens, 12. Aaron Jackson, 9. Patrick Rogers, 16. Libby Jeter, 14. Terry Pugh, 15. Patrick Balthazar, 12. Curtis Walker, 13. Joseph Bell, 15. Timothy Hill, 13. William Barrett, 17. Eddie Duncan, 21. Larry Rogers, 20. Michael McIntosh, 23, Jimmy Ray Payne, 21, John Porter, 28, Nathaniel Carter, 27. So out of all of those crimes, there were, so they, Jimmy Ray Payne, Nathaniel Carter were, uh, Williams was tried and found guilty of the crime. The others were attributed to Williams and their case had been closed, except for Darren Glass, Latanya Wilson, Jeffrey Mathis, 
Angel Lanier, Milton Harvey, and Edward Smith are all currently unresolved. I find it very odd that there's like a seven-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem like his thing. Because he was... Well, it's unresolved. Gay. Right. Yep. Not that, you know, he was a known if homosexual. you're gay, you can only kill whatever, but... That just seems out of his... You like, really. Yeah, whoever you want. Um, exactly. That seems well, weird. Well, yeah, it does. And she was also the one who uh, was reportedly taken out of her apartment mm-hmm. uh, by two men, it said. Um, hers is unresolved. Um, Edward huh. Smith's is unresolved. Uh, was she the only female? Uh, no. Angel Lanier was okay. 12. Also unresolved. Interesting. I know. So there are some similarities, but I guess not enough at that time. So So I also wanted to say, because there was so much more information (laughs) that could easily be dragged into lots more of a podcast. If you would like a part two of this episode, delving deeper into the trial and details and testimonies, feel free to let us know. Um... And if you love this episode and want to hear more about it, then let us know by uh, using the keyword more Atlanta in a five-star iTunes or Apple podcast review. And I'll be glad to do a part two uh, on there. And I'll put references on at the end of, end of the description. Sounds good. Well, thanks so much, guys, for tuning in and listening to us. Feel free to like and follow us at Fireside Crime on Instagram. And also... Um, like and follow and subscribe to us on uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts and wherever you podcast. Yes. And until next time, we'll see you by the fire. Okay, look, we're going to see you, but also leave a review. <laughs> yeah, leave a review. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> bye.